0: Well, we find ourselves in Romans chapter 11, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning, Romans 11, verses 1 through 6. You can open up your copy of God's Word and read along with me, Romans eleven, one through 6. Let's read these verses together. Verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Oh, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. This ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. What has caused you to doubt God's goodness, his sovereign, faithful love and care in your life? Maybe it's a sudden death. Maybe it's a tragic situation from your childhood or a terrible disease. Maybe it's the constant news reports of war and atrocities. Maybe it's the breakdown of your family relationships. Maybe it's more internal. Perhaps a struggle with depression, anxiety, fear of man, a fear of failure that, that consumes you and cripples you. And somehow, imperceptibly at first, as you feel like you're drowning your own difficulties, your thoughts begin to shift. And they shift towards slowly yet surely blaming God. As you begin to realize, I can't control my life. As trials mount, many of us struggle with doubting God's faithfulness. And such was the case with a man named Henry Box Brown. Henry was born into slavery in the year 1816. And he's best known for escaping slavery by shipping himself in a three-foot by two-foot box labeled dry goods, hence the name Henry Box Brown. But what led up to his escape plan captures the heartbreak and anger towards God, which so often go together in our lives. See, after enduring three brutal years as a teenager working on a plantation, Henry was sent to work in a chewing tobacco factory in Richmond, Virginia. While living in Richmond, he earned a little bit of money at this factory and was able to go to the local slave church every Sunday. And while at church, the 20-year-old Brown fell in love with a fellow church member named Nancy. The two married in that church and would go on to have four children together. Marriage was never easy, Nancy was bought and sold two different times during the course of their marriage, but still managed to stay in Richmond with her husband for 12 years. And her last owner let Henry live on their property with his family in exchange for whatever small wages Henry could manage from the tobacco factory. Eventually, Nancy's enslaver demanded more money than Henry could afford and soon after Henry failed to meet his demands, he sold Nancy and their kids without notice to a plantation in North Carolina. And when Henry heard the tragic news, he was given immediate leave from his factory to, to try and say goodbye and, to his wife and his children. So he ran into the town center where the slaves were sold and he first saw his son and, and then his pregnant wife They all burst into tears upon seeing each other. And Henry was permitted to walk four miles with his family before they were transported to North Carolina. Henry writes, when at last we were obliged to part, the look of mutual love which we exchanged was all the token which we could give each other. I simply had to turn away in silence. You see, the loss of his family so struck Henry that he stopped attending church for quite a while, angry at God. In writing of those dark days, he said, My agony was now complete. She with whom I had traveled the journey of life in chains for the space of 12 years and the dear little pledges God had given us, I could see plainly, must now be separated from me forever. I must continue desolate and alone, to drag my chains through this world. And even after his escape from slavery a few years later, Henry never saw his family again. We can't even imagine such a horrid series of events in our lives. And sadly, it's the reality of lives like this, situations like that, that caused so many to doubt the goodness and faithfulness of God. Paul's heart broke for the plight of his fellow Jews. A few years before he wrote the book of Romans, many were forced to leave their homes. Slavery, murder, unspeakable atrocities filled their history. And many Jews simply rejected Jesus as their Messiah and remained lost in their sin-cursed world. And so with a broken heart for his fellow kinsmen, Paul asks, is God still faithful to his promises? Is God going to be faithful to his promises like he made to Abraham? I want you to turn and look at some of these promises. Go, Go to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17, verse 7. See, in this passage, Genesis 17, verse 7, God unilaterally, that just is a fancy way to say by himself and by himself alone without reference to anyone's obedience or anyone's faithfulness, God unilaterally makes a covenant promise with Abraham and his offspring, which become the nation of Israel. This is a promise of reconciliation with him or a right standing with him and and a promise to give them a land as an everlasting gift. And so as you read Genesis 17 verses 7 and 8, I want you to notice that two times God himself promises what he calls an everlasting or eternal gift. Read with me, Genesis 17 verse 7 and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. That is to have a reconcile, the right relationship with with God. And verse 8, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an, what's that word? Everlasting possession and I will be their God. See, how can God be faithful to these promises and Israel if they have not been in their land for some 1,800 years, as was the case before 1948? How can God be faithful to these promises and to Israel if most reject Jesus as their Messiah, as is the case now? And so so many conclude if we can't trust God to be faithful to Israel, then we can't trust God to be faithful to us. When our lives fall apart, if we were to be enslaved and lose our families, what hope do we have? If God is not faithful, I believe the answer is we have no hope. Our hope certainly is not in the goodness of humanity. Our hope is certainly not in a better government. Our hope is certainly not in more education or better medicine. You see, our greatest source of hope must be in God, who is always faithful, who is always true, to do what is best for his children and for his glory. And so even if we encounter unspeakable trials, we must be reminded of the fact that God is faithful and true. Go back to Romans and look at Romans chapter 8, verse 23. The theme of God's faithfulness has been a favorite of Paul's in this epistle. And now as he's applying it and looking at the history of Israel, he recalls a lot of the same promises and words that he's made uh, earlier. Listen to what he says, Romans 8 verse 23, read along with me. See, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies for in this hope, that is the redemption of our bodies, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, that is our future salvation, our future restoration, our future glorification, we wait for it with patience, no matter what comes, right? Right? Verse 26, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weaknesses for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words and God who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so then he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. See, promises like this crumble if God is not trustworthy. These promises fail if God is not faithful. So given the perception that perhaps God has failed the Jews, Paul wants to make sure that we realize that God is indeed still faithful. And so as we look at the beginning of Romans chapter 11, we're going to see three reasons we can trust God's faithfulness. Three reasons we can trust God's faithfulness. Or you might say these are the descriptions of how God has worked in the past and how he still works in the present to preserve a remnant of Jews Now, Paul appeals to the character and the very nature of God, to to how God always works to fulfill his plans when he wants and how he wants. And, And I think as we consider some of the example of the Jews, we're going to be reminded that suffering, being sinned against, all of that is wrapped up into God's plan to grow us. To preserve us, to to make us into who he wants us to be. And really, this has been Paul's point for several chapters. Go, go back to Romans chapter five, verse three. Go back to Romans five, verse three. So so our salvation and our Christian life is often going to be a life of suffering, a life of hardships, and God wants us, even plans us, to go through difficulties to make us and to mold us into exactly who we need to be. You know, sometimes I pray, I say, God, please help me learn my lessons in an easier way. Because I recognize that often the times of my my biggest growth in life is in the midst of my biggest trials of life. For it's only when I see how weak I am that I realize how big and powerful God is. And so God providentially uses difficulties to help us grow. It's all part of His plan. Go back to Romans 11. And so it is with how God has worked with the nation of Israel. God's promises to Israel are not nullified. They are not to be discarded, even as suffering and trials abound. Paul points us back to the faithful character of God. He reminds all believers, Jew and Gentile alike, God is always trustworthy. No matter what our hearts feel, even what our eyes may see. So our first reason we can trust God's faithfulness is, number one, God foreknows an Israelite remnant. God foreknows an Israelite remnant. See, by and large, Israel, even today, remains in unbelief. Speaking of Israel, in Romans 10, verse 2, read these words with me. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God that comes through Jesus Christ alone and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Clearly, that describes the majority of Jews even today. Paul says later, even still, God offers his reconciliation to them and they still disobey, and are contrary to him. Go to the end of chapter 10, verse 21. Of Israel, he says, all day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. God's offer of grace and reconciliation was, and still is, predominantly rejected. And in the years after Paul wrote Romans, Jewish Talmudic writers called Jesus a sorcerer from hell, an idol worshiper, and today most jews continue to reject jesus as their messiah isaiah 53 is intentionally skipped in synagogues from their readings and so paul asks the logical question chapter 11 verse 1 i ask then has god rejected his people even though it seems like Israel has mostly rejected Jesus and, and God has written off Israel, even though they were just described as a disobedient and contrary people, Paul is going to point to the fact that there is always and always have, has been a remnant. Look what he says. He asks the question. I ask then, has God rejected his people? What's his answer? By no means. Certainly not. God cannot reject his people. And why does he say that? Verse 1 continues. For I myself, Paul says, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. There's always been a remnant. Go back to 9, verse 27. Chapter 9, verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For he differentiates a Israel that your eyes see and a spiritual Israel, those who actually come to faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 9, verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel actually belong to Israel. The idea that there are those who are actually part of the remnant of true Israel who believe that Jesus is their Messiah and the majority who do not. And so Paul is the perfect example of a remnant of true Israel. Not only is he a Jew, but he is a Jew who actually knows his tribe. At this point, many have not a clue what tribe of Israel they belong to. And yet here is Paul, or formerly Saul, who understood that he was a Benjaminite from a family who had maintained some sort of records to realize what tribe they were a part of, proving that God has always had a remnant in mind. So Paul asks the question, has God rejected his people? By no means, and he points to himself, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. But the remnant aren't the most lovely, the remnant aren't the ones inclined naturally towards Jesus, the remnant aren't the most wealthy or the best or the brightest. In this case, in Paul's case, the remnant was about as bad as you can get. Paul famously killed Christians again and again and again. He went around from house to house looking for Jewish converts to Christianity, taking them prisoner and killing them. Look at Paul's own testimony in 1 Timothy 1. Go ahead and turn there. 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. As Paul is praising God for what he's done in his life, he kind of goes through his former life. I think it's very instructive to us to realize that as Paul is giving his testimony very briefly here in a form of a prayer, that he notes how it was God alone who saved him. Certainly is not by his own efforts. So read 1 Timothy 1 verse 12. Paul says, I thank him and the saint is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Oh, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, Paul's salvation, just like the remnant of Jews, is based on God's plan, not on Paul's goodness, not on Paul's cooperation with God to do enough good to please God or to somehow find the Messiah. No, he was an insolent opponent of God. And so you see in verse 12, right away, it was God who had to appoint Paul to this service. And then Paul passively, verse 13, received the mercy that God had shown him. Verse 14, God's grace overflowed to Paul in spite of himself. Verse 16, Jesus was able to display perfect patience because of Paul's ongoing bitterness and rebellion against God. See, Paul highlights as the foremost of sinners that he was saved by God's hand, By God working in his life, not by his own efforts. So go back to Romans 11. Specifically, Paul says that his salvation is based on God's foreknowledge. God's foreknowledge. Look at the beginning of verse 2. He gives the example, for I myself and am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, verse 2, God then has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Now, there are two typical ways that people interpret this word foreknew. It could mean simply knowing something ahead of time, like knowing that I would choose this best this morning. God... Certainly knew that. That's simple foreknowledge. Essentially, God knows what I'm going to choose or how I'm going to do, what I'm going to do. This is called simple foreknowledge. But more often in the scriptures, it means to intimately know or to love someone ahead of time. It speaks of God choosing to place his love and affections on us before there was even us. Without regard to anything which we would or wouldn't do, God chose to love us. That's what it means to foreknow us. So in verse 2, Paul highlights God's choosing of the remnant in Israel, like Paul, based on his foreknowledge. He contrasts a rejection of most of Israel with his selection to foreknow some, like Paul. So he says very clearly, God has not rejected everyone, right? He's not rejected all of his people whom he foreknew. Notice it's also people whom God foreknew, not choices. That's also an important distinction. This goes well with Romans 8.29, which also speaks to foreknowledge. Go go back there. Romans 8.29. God says this, for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Again, he didn't foreknow actions. It's those people he foreknew to belong to Jesus. And so you could really translate God foreloved some people and then he purposed and actually accomplished conforming them to the image of his son. Making them adopted children. He foreknew us. He chose to love us. That's what what that means. Romans 9 famously makes this point with Jacob and Esau. Chapter 9, verse 11, right? Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election or choosing might continue, what do he say? Verse 13. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This concept of foreknowledge crops up really throughout the Bible. Just consider Psalm 1, verse 6. The opening of the book of Psalms, Psalm 1, verse 6, we see this word. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, in Hebrew poetry, there's often a lot of contrasts. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So if there's a contrast here, there's a contrast between knowing and not knowing Does he somehow not know the ways of the wicked? Does he somehow not know and is ignorant of somehow what the wicked are going to do? No, the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So, So what is knowing here? Knowing can't mean just knowing what the righteous are gonna do. This knowing here is a love, it's a it's an intimate knowledge as if you know them as a family member. So the Lord intimately knows and loves the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's the contrast that he's trying to make. Just think of how the word know is used in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Adam knew his wife. You guys all know what that means. There's an intimate love that's wrapped up in this word to know. To see this elsewhere, go to Matthew chapter 7. Go to Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. Matthew chapter 27. Jesus also uses the word to know in the same way when on the day of judgment, some people come to him and they're saying, oh, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? In other words, they're saying, Lord, Lord, didn't I choose to identify myself as a Christian? Did I not choose you, Lord Jesus? And what does Jesus say in verse 23? What does he say? Matthew seven twenty-three. And I will declare to them, I never knew you Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's that word no. He knows who they are. He's not ignorant. He's not like, who are you? Surprised that they're there. He's God, he's omniscient. So, what does the word no mean? It means I did not love you as my own child, as my son, as my daughter. And so very often, the opposite of God knowing his people or knowing his family is not ignorance of like not knowing. The opposite of God, knowing his people, is God choosing to reject those who end up rejecting him too. Chapter 11, verse 2. Go back to Romans 11, verse 2. What does he say very clearly? God has not rejected his people, and like all of his people, whom he foreknew. There are people like Paul, Jews like Paul, who will be saved. And so to foreknow, to know is to love as a family, and to foreknow is to love beforehand from eternity past. To foreknow is essentially synonymous with foreloved. God choosing to treat us as his children, to save us, to adopt us, and to to be faithful to his good and perfect plan. Foreknowledge isn't God looking ahead to see what we're going to do. It's God choosing to love his children. To make his point in Romans 11 verse 2, Paul alludes to 1 Samuel chapter 12. See, verse 2 is is a quote or a paraphrase of 1 Samuel 12, this idea that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. In 1 Samuel 11 and 12, the nation of Israel has in many ways rejected God as their king and instead sought to be just like the other nations. They have begged and pleaded with Samuel to give them a king. And so, of course, the king that God gives them is Saul, a wicked king. But as as Samuel gives his farewell address, he ends on a note of grace as the people recognize their sin of asking for a king. They actually have this uh, prayer of repentance before Samuel. And then we see these words for Samuel 12, 20. Just listen. Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid, you have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And here's the verse that's paraphrased for us, verse 22. For Yahweh will not forsake his people. He will not reject his people. For his great name's sake, because it has pleased Yahweh to make you a people for himself. He will not reject those whom he foreknew. God's plan to preserve his children, those whom he foreknew, whom he foreloved, can never be thwarted. See, this is a great comfort for Christians as well, for we are foreknown and foreloved by God. And with Israel as an apt example, we see that God is always faithful to his children, which includes us, beloved, adopted children as the family of God. And God is trustworthy as a faithful father who loves us before the foundation of the world and will bring his work in us through to completion. He will bring us through whatever trial you may be experiencing, through families torn apart, through physical and emotional pain, to make and mold us into his perfect image. You're in Romans 11. Go back to Romans 8. Just listen to God and read God's promises again. Verse 15, Romans 8, 15. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Go to 28, 828. For we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? His answer is at the end of verse 39, nothing, nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, these comforts are rooted in God's faithful love foreknown planned, and set upon us before time even began. This is what it means to trust an eternal, faithful, and really trustworthy God. As we continue in Romans 11, Israel again is an example for us of God's faithfulness. So number two, we see God has always preserved an Israelite remnant remnant. God foreknows an Israelite remnant. And number two, God has always preserved an Israelite remnant. Now to make this second point, Paul moves from his personal testimony to history of Israel. Not only is God faithful to preserve a remnant today like, like Paul and like many Jews that you know, but he is always and always has been in Israel's history working to preserve a remnant and so he looks back even to the Old Testament to the life of Elijah in 1 Kings nineteen, and helps us see that God habitually preserved a remnant of true, faithful, and believing Israel to be His own. Good chapter eleven, Romans eleven, verse two. He says again, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. He says, Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. I mean, I like how Paul assumes that Christians in a church know the Bible, right? He he assumes here, he says, do you not know what it says about Elijah? It's why we read through the scriptures in our services. It's why we engage in family worship. It's why we read the Bible together. It's why we read the Bible ourselves. Biblical literacy at a time when not everyone had their own Bible in this day is assumed by Paul. I mean, that's incredible, right? They didn't have a copy of the whole scriptures. And yet Paul assumes the biblical literacy. He says, don't you know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? And so Paul quotes a verse from 1 Kings 19 and expects that most Christians know the context. Look, verse 3, this is what he says. Here's the quote. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life, Elijah said. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, do you know exactly what that's talking about in 1 Kings 19, Mr. and Mrs. Biblical Literate here? If you don't, that's okay. Go back to 1 Kings 19 and 18. 1 Kings 19 and 18. I think many of you actually do know a little bit of the history of what's going on. Because what happens in First Kings 18, we have one of those classic flannel graph stories from your childhood if you grew up in church. It's the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You know, the showdown on top of Mount Carmel. You've got uh, Elijah by himself on one side, and you got a cadre of the prophets of Baal on the other. And uh, Elijah lets the prophets of Baal go first, and they each have a, uh, a bull uh, on an altar. And he says, okay, we're going to see which god... Is the true God by determining which one is able to make fire come down and consume this um, bull right away? All right. So the prophets of Baal um, all day long are trying to get Baal to kind of get fire to come down, and nothing happens. And you know they they dance around, they cut themselves, and and Elijah mocks them, says maybe Baal's sleeping. You should be louder, right? You know he's mocking them, and it, it's just it's kind of a comical great story, and and then of course it comes time to Elijah to do his turn, and he says all right, to show you that God is really, really powerful, I'm going to have you pour water all over this thing because everyone knows that fire and water don't mix. And so he pours water all over this altar and against the, uh, um, on all the wood and uh, on the animal. And, And so all of this goes on, right? And then as Elijah prays to God, of course, fire comes down. And look at 1 Kings 18, verse 39, verse 38 and 39. He says, And then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Of course they're terrified, right? And so it seems like all the people want to go and worship the the one true God at this point. And then, then verse 40 happens, and this is the part that doesn't show up on your flannel graphs, right? Verse 40 And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them all there. I didn't see that part, but you know, that's there, okay? But this was perhaps one of the shortest lived revivals in all of history. Because the very next day, the queen hears of what happens. You know the queen, Queen Jezebel. And Elijah is terrified. Queen Jezebel, she's the archetype of all evil queens. You know, all those you know, evil queens from the Disney movies, they're, they're based on Queen Jezebel, basically. She's not an, even an Israelite. And she turns the head of King Ahab wherever she wants. And she wields the real power in the land of Israel. As we're about to see, even Elijah is terrified of Queen Jezebel. Look at 1 Kings 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Well, then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah another, the Southern kingdom, right? And he left his servant there. Quite scary. Even this figure who mocked the prophets of Baal and would seem to be so full of vigor and life hears the queen's words and melts like an ice cube on a hot day. He runs for his life, and it seems like all Israel is fickle too. He feels all alone. And it's at this point that God speaks to him. Verse 9, 19 verse 9 then he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of Yahweh came to him when he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then verse 10, this is the part that's quoted in Romans 11. He said, I've been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. You killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And then, after displaying God's immense power, in the next verses, God commands Elijah to go anoint some new leaders of Syria and of Israel. And he concludes with a word of hope that Elijah is not alone despite what he feels. That a remnant remains. A remnant that God himself preserved 1st Kings 19 verse 18 yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him who left those 7,000 there did they all get wise and figured it out no what does it say God tells him I will leave 7,000 in Israel. Who is it? God preserves his people. Even the whole land, even though the whole land was gripped by a fear of a tyrannical queen and her zeal for a false God, even though it seemed as if the whole culture were lost, God reminds Elijah I'm on your side, and I will be faithful to preserve a remnant to be with you always. Go back to Romans 11 and read these verses again with that context in your mind that Paul assumed that you knew. Romans 11 verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left and they seek my life. What is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. With so much going on in Israel these days, I bet some of you might read or hear people talking about and looking to find some biblical prophecies in the news that you're seeing some look to the modern state of israel and say here is living and abiding proof that god has preserved his people he has preserved a nation dispersed for almost 1800 years brought back to the land in 1948 and thus we are looking at the nation of israel at god's hand at work today preserving a remnant but i need to remind you of a few things what is a remnant in this passage It is people like Paul who are faithful men and women and children who embrace Jesus as Messiah. The nation of Israel certainly has not embraced Christ as Messiah, and the vast majority of Jews in Israel remain with their knees bowed to various Baals. They worship a God of their own making, not the one true triune God of the Bible. And so, as much as God's sovereignty has preserved Jews as a distinct people against all odds through Holocaust, wars, and near constant threats, the state of Israel as we see it today is not the remnant. And even if the unimaginable would happen, that we pray does not happen, like Iran and some nuclear device or, or some horrendous military defeat crippling Israel's ability even to exist as a nation, will God still be faithful to his people to preserve a remnant? What does Israel's history teach us again and again and again? Of course God will be faithful, no matter what happens. God has always preserved an Israelite rem- remnant. And that remnant must come to God to know Jesus as their Messiah. This is what was always promised in the Old Testament too. Again, I want you to see this, so turn to Micah chapter 7. I want you to see and understand that God has promised that his people will remain a distinct people and that they will come to know him as their Lord and Savior Micah is uh, in those parts of your Bible where the pages are stuck together. It's one of the minor prophets. Um, It is right before Nahum, Micah chapter 7. Nahum is the book right after that. So find Nahum and go back one page. Micah chapter 7. Listen, we should pray for the peace of Israel, and we should trust God to preserve his people in, in his ways, in ways that we can't even imagine, but even if we get surprised with what that looks like along the way, we can't not trust God. I mean, I think Elijah was surprised with how things turned out. And God said, you have to trust me. I have a remnant, even if you don't know who they are. So no matter what comes with the current state of Israel, we trust that God will preserve his people and preserve a remnant who will turn and follow Jesus as Messiah. This is where we get into Micah 7, verse 18. Micah 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea you will show faithfulness to Jacob, lest you think he was talking about somebody else, right? You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Listen, the future hope for Israel has been slowly realized like, by, by men like Paul and godly Jews today who have turned to Christ one by one for God is faithful to fulfill his promises and the very character of God is at stake. He says very clearly, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and set us love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. There will come a day when you will save many in your nation, in your people. There's another passage I want you to see. Zechariah chapter 12. Go further to the right, the Minor Prophets. Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. And so even though a remnant continued to be saved, a large-scale turning of the nation of Israel back to Christ has yet to happen. It's not hard to recognize that Christian churches do not dominate the landscape of Israel, okay? In fact, they are often persecuted in the nation of Israel. And yet we know it will happen one day Because the faithful, God, said that it would. Look at Zechariah 12, verse 10. Zechariah 12, verse 10. He says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Look, there are two things that you've got to pay attention to what was just said by God. First of all, it says that they, the nation of Israel, will turn to me, that is to God. And how does God describe himself in this verse? Look at it. As the one whom they have pierced. Who do you think that's talking about? Right? It's talking about Jesus. This mourning, then, will lead to widespread repentance from all the tribes who turn to Christ. Zechariah 12, verse 12. Look down there. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself and their wives by themselves and all the families that are all left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Where do you think we get the, there is a fountain filled with blood, right? I mean, these words are taken directly from passages like this because we recognize that Jesus is the only source of hope for the Jews. And God tells us very clearly, there is a day coming when massive amounts of Israel will be converted and come to saving faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Full forgiveness and cleansing from sin that comes through Jesus alone. And so as much as we pray for peace in Israel, we also ought to pray for a turning to Jesus, to the one whom they have pierced, and that many would come to know Jesus and understand God's only gospel of hope that comes when they finally realize that God crushed his son in their place so that they could have eternal life. See, God's message may be met with strong resistance. Even those of us in our country, we may feel like Elijah at times. I'm the only one left. But we trust that God will remain faithful to his word that he will work in us, holding us fast to the end. That's what he's done with Israel. All along, all throughout Israel's history, he's shown us that God has always preserved an Israelite remnant. So ought you to trust in a faithful God too? That he will work in us, holding us fast to the end? Rejoicing, knowing that his grace is his alone to give? So our third reason we can trust God's faithfulness, number three, God chooses to show grace on an Israelite remnant. You can turn back to Romans 11. God chooses, number three here, to show grace to an Israelite remnant. Now, when I was in elementary school and my brother in preschool, I distinctly remember convincing him to trade me his $5 bill that he got from grandma for two of my $1 bills. After all, I convinced him two bills are better than one bill. And as soon as he bragged about that to my parents, my gig was up. I don't even know if they remember this, but it left a mark on me. As we get older, we started to realize that money was better attached to work and not thievery. We didn't get allowance, but we got a wage based on our chores. You work and you get money. It taught us the biblical principle that if you work, you eat. But it's also very easy to start to feel entitled about your money, to come to expect more and more from your labors, to live by the phrase, oh, I've earned this. And sometimes with God, the most disciplined, nice, good at being good type people can think, you know, I'm good with God. I've earned this. But Paul reminds us that salvation is not ultimately something we can earn. It's based only on God's grace. And so we see this, verse 5. Romans 11, verse 5. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Any Jew who believes in Christ, like any Gentile who believes in Christ, belongs to God for one very simple reason. They have been chosen by God's grace. Chosen by God's foreknowing love. It's totally based on God, not us. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. And to further cement salvation firmly as God's choice and thus his free sovereign grace, Paul continues in verse 6, doesn't he? But if it is by grace, that is a free gift that we don't deserve, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. How else could you choose to translate the word choose here, right? God elected those whom he would show grace to. And so one commentator actually paraphrases these verses in maybe a, a more stark way for us. We can conclude, therefore, that in the present time, a Jewish remnant exists by, God gracious, by God's gracious election. And God's gracious election logically excludes any role of works, for grace is not truly grace if works play a role. An election is purely God's choice. It's not based on simple foreknowledge, not knowing ahead of time who's going to choose what. It's all about God's free, sovereign choice. That's what it means for God to elect by grace. And so it is God's gracious choice alone that saves. Notice in verse 6, the contrast is not between faith and works, but between grace and works. Certainly, Paul has contrasted faith and works earlier, but faith isn't in these verses. His point is to paint such a big picture of God that every Christian learns to trust in him implicitly, to see the very existence of Christians as evidence that God is gracious and wants to work in people's lives and that he does. So Paul contrasts God's gracious choice with any work that anybody can do. And so God's saving work, his sustaining work, his preserving a remnant work is all a gracious gift. It's it's all his work, not ours. And yes, even faith is a gift from God who prior to our faith shows us in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 verse 4. Ephesians 2 8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. That faith is not your own doing. It's actually a gift from God. Paul says let grace be grace and learn to trust God more than preserve your own free will, your own ability to work. God's grace trumps works always, which is exactly what he did in Romans 9. He taught us in Romans 9. Romans 9 verse 11, right? Though they were not yet born and did nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election or God's choosing might continue, not because of works, because, but because of him who calls, because of God. She was told, the older will serve the younger. Or Jacob, I loved, Esau, I hated. Verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Again, note the parallels to Romans 11, verse 5 and 6, right? So, too, at the present time, there's a remnant, you know, of Israelites. They are chosen by grace. Who is doing the choosing here? It is God doing the choosing by grace, a free gift that they don't deserve. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Again, the same thing he's just been saying. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Grace would not be grace if our salvation were based on what we did or on human will or based on what Jacob did. The only way to let grace be grace is to lean into God's sovereign grace to choose whomsoever he wills. Listen, this is a huge challenge for many Jews, for they had turned God's way into a religion of human achievement. And so it is with many who go by the name of Christ today who think that they can earn God's grace like a wage. A correction? Shift your view of God. He is trustworthy because he not only first knows and chooses those who belong to him, God makes it happen. So we're reminded that nothing can separate us from his love. Listen, if you have learned to trust God's faithfulness and his sovereign grace poured out in you, I'm going to close with a few short implications, okay? Bear with me. A few short implications. This is where the rubber meets the road in your life. Number one, Be thankful in prosperity. Certainly, you may come to deserve a raise in your job and think, I've earned this. And you may get better at marriage, parenting, and life in general, and think, you know, I've earned the blessings of this life. But even those things are blessings from your sovereign God who has given you them. We started by talking about things that caused us to doubt God's goodness, his faithfulness, to doubt that that he is good to us always we considered various trials we considered slavery but i think too often isn't prosperity the thing that causes us to doubt his faithfulness most because isn't it in prosperity that we consistently think too highly of ourselves and our abilities and think you know what i've earned this i'm doing pretty good i'm making all the right decisions here The humble who rightly see God as sovereign realize their total dependence on him and they will be thankful in prosperity. Number two, be patient in adversity. On the other side of life, seeing God's sovereignty ought to be a rich comfort to those who are in the midst of adversity. Not because we'll always be able to escape tragedy. Even though Henry Box Brown escaped to freedom, his life was marked by his trials, haunted by the experiences of those early years. And still, tragedy and trials should not define us if we are Christians. We are not victims by definition, but children of the living God. And so no matter the sin that we experience in life, we can be patient in adversity, trusting in God's good hand to guide us through the storm. Number three, pray for the hardened unbelievers. Number three, pray for the hardened unbelievers. You see, if indeed God chooses those whom he will to belong to him and foreknows and loves them, then certainly we ought to fervently pray for anyone and everyone to know him, to know Christ. Even though the most hardened unbeliever can be softened because God's grace is not repelled by the thickness of our head. But as it were, God's grace penetrates even into the vision of joint and marrow and soul and spirit. So be faithful and pray for the unbelievers in your life, no matter how hard they seem. Number four, take risks with your life. If God has you in his sovereign hand, then certainly you will not add to or take from an hour of your life. Now, don't be foolish and go and skydive without a parachute, but you know, for the sake of the Lord, take some risks. Take some relational risks to share Christ. Take some occupational risks to share Christ. Be in danger of being overly generous, not miserly with your money. God in his sovereign grace chose you, called you, keeps you. So what can man do to you? Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Number five, prioritize worship. If God is truly faithful and omnipotent and promises to work in your life for your good as his child, Aren't you not to prioritize corporate worship? Why is corporate worship for some of you seemingly optional? Some of you might be watching from the comfort of your own home right now and be happy to be at Bedside Baptist in your comfy clothes without all the social obligations of church. Talking to you, hi. But your Heavenly Father who loves you, who chose you, tells you something very clear. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Now, we understand there's some of you who are indeed sick and cannot come today. Please do not share your wealth with us. But if that does not describe you and you're just in Bedside Baptist and enjoy Bedside Baptist, you're not living the way you should be living. There's something unique that happens when God's people get together to sing praise to the Lord and encourage one another. There is no substitute for that. Unless you think God only cares about your Sunday's, Should we not be engaged also in family worship? Faithfully praying, reading, singing, learning to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength throughout our week. Prioritize worship. Number six, don't think I must not be chosen. Don't think I must not be chosen. Perhaps some of you are not trusting in Christ this morning. Perhaps you are young and have been mostly focused on drawing or your mom's phone or about video games. Perhaps you've caught something about the sovereignty of God and salvation, and you you might think, I don't want to honor Christ above all. And so perhaps maybe you have said, I must not be chosen by God. Rather, you ought to say, since all God's choosing is by grace, there is absolutely no reason to think I am excluded. For Jesus calls you, come to me all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So if you don't know Christ, come today. Come to know him as your Lord and Savior. Turn from living for yourself as king and live for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the powerful evidence that you've shown us in the life uh, of the people of, of Israel, how repeatedly, again and again, Israel has shown itself to be rebellious and rejected your ways and your calls to turn to, to you, and, and yet you are gracious You have continued to preserve a remnant of believing Israelites. You have continued to preserve people who have rejected you by and large. And you even have distinctly preserved them as a people group because we know that there is a future that you have for your people. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would save the souls of those who do not know you as their Lord and Savior, both Jew and Gentile alike. I pray that if there be any here who do not know you as their Lord and Savior, if they have come to realize that they do not want to worship you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, that today would be a day where they submit themselves to you and that your calling would be obvious in their lives. Lord, we pray for repentance and faith that all of us would live that faithful life of repentance and faith, trusting in you, our faithful, true, sovereign God. We pray this in Jesus' name.